Father, tonight we want to hear your voice. The Psalms are such a rich treasure chest of wisdom and of blessing, of instruction to us. And I pray, God, as we dig into them, that you're just going to reveal things to us, not the wisdom of man, but the wisdom of God, not my words, but words that are inspired and directed by you. Tonight, let us grab hold of this message. Let us grab hold of the truth of your word in the book of Psalms. And I pray that every one of us, when we leave, let us to have been impacted, Lord, not by my teaching, but by the power of the word of God and the moving of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So last week, Pastor Mark began this series on Psalms, um, top 150. Psalms are songs, poems, and prayers that were written over a period of about 900 years. And they were written by many different authors. Now, David was, was represented more than any of the other authors. So a lot of times we, we consider this the book of David. And we think of Psalms, we think naturally of David first. But other authors that wrote Psalms include Asaph, um, the sons of Korah, or the descendants of Korah. Solomon, David's son, wrote, wrote a couple. Ethan, Heman, and, and even Moses. There's a Psalm even that Moses wrote. And about 49 of these psalms, almost a third, roughly a third of the 150 psalms, are technically anonymous, although there's you know, a lot of those that we believe to be written by David, uh, maybe because of references from the New Testament or because some of the internal structure looks like it's you know, Davidic writing. Now, one of the things Pastor Mark talked about last week is the book of Psalms is divided up into five books. Book one, book two, book three, you... So on, right? Clever names, right? Very clever names. Um, this week, we're going to start on book two. Last week, Pastor Mark talked on book one. We're going to talk about book two tonight in general. And specifically, we're going to talk about Psalm 51, which, which is part of book two. Before we do that, I want to point out something that I, I really feel is a direct connection between Psalms and our equip strategy here at Calvary. And for those of you who don't know, equip is our strategy to help all people become mature believers of Christ or to make disciples, mature disciples of all people. That's our strategy. We started this a year and a half ago. And I believe there's a, a, a really clear connection between equip and the Psalms. And here's what it is. One of our guiding axioms for equip is a statement that was made by John Piper. People need to become Christians, and people need to be taught how to think, feel, and act as a Christian. Okay, this is a fundamental principle of equip. Becoming a Christian is the first step. That's the first step. Everybody needs to become a Christian. That is the first step. But becoming a Christian does not mean that we now know how to think, how to feel, and how to act as a Christian. These things are not innate things that we just know, right? So how do we learn them? How do we teach those things? How do we teach right thinking and right feeling and right actions? Well, in Matthew 28, in what we have come to know as the Great Commission, Jesus said, he's talking about making disciples, he says that we should teach them to observe everything he's commanded. Everything. So, that's a good place to start, isn't it? 
And I think that can keep us busy for quite a while because if we just study the four Gospels and what Jesus said in those four Gospels, it's going to set us on the road to learning how to think, feel, and act like a Christian. And actually, that's why we're starting a new class in here, a new series in here next month, beginning with, in September, the Wednesday after Labor Day, we're starting a series in here on the parables of Jesus. That's precisely why we're doing this. If we're supposed to teach disciples to obey the things Jesus commanded well, we need to do that. The uh, parables are a good place to do that. So we'll be starting that series next month. But I want to point out another way that I think we can accomplish this goal, and that is through the Psalms. You see, the Psalms contain a remarkable wealth of instruction on how the man or woman of God should not only act, but think and feel. We learn not only how to express joy and thanksgiving, but we know how to properly feel joy and thanksgiving. We see not only how to respond rightly to sadness and desperation and discouragement and despair, but also how to rightly feel sadness and feel discouragement and feel desperation and despair. And there's so much more. There's so much more in the book of Psalms. In fact, here's a, here's a brief partial list, just a partial list of some of the feelings that the book of Psalms touches on. Loneliness, awe, sorrow, regret, guilt, contrition, discouragement, shame, exultation, marveling, delight, joy, gladness, fear, anger, peace, grief, desire, hope, brokenheartedness, gratitude, zeal, pain, and confidence. And I could take and point you to specific verses in the book of Psalms that address each and every one of those. But I think one thing you'll notice in that list is they're not all the, uh, you know, the positive feel-good feelings, are they? There are some that are not quite so much, but, but here's the truth. Christians experience fear. Christians experience grief. Christians experience despair. Christians experience guilt. Yeah. See, we're not immune to these feelings, are we? We're not. It's part of the human experience. The question is, do you want to learn how to feel these things the way a Christian should feel them? Other than read Psalms. That's my advice. Make a habit of reading the Psalms, and as you do, pay close attention. Take notice to how the various writers address these feelings, where they lead to, and what the godly responses are to them. Let the Psalms transform your feeling into biblical feeling. Let them teach you how to feel as a Christian. And tonight... We're going to talk later about how we should properly feel guilt as a Christian. But first, before we get into that, let's take a look at book two of the Psalms. Book two is comprised of Psalms 42 through 72. These chapters contain so many memorable, verse, memorable verses, verses that I know you will recognize maybe from sermons or a lot of them have been put to music. You would recognize them perhaps from songs and that sort of thing. Uh, and, and, and quite a few of these in book two are just so 
beautifully poetic. I mean, they are written so well. It's just, it's just remarkable the skill that some of these are written. Listen, listen, please, to just a few of the things that we read in book two of Psalms. Psalm 42, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength in ever-present help and trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, the mountains fall into the sea. Also in Psalm 46, he says, be still and know that I am God. Psalm 53, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 57, be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and let your glory be over all the earth. Psalm 63, God, you are my God. I will seek you earnestly. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there's no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will praise you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. Psalm 66, sing the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. We hear that phrase a lot, don't we? We sing that phrase in songs, make his praise glorious. It comes from book two of the Psalms. In Psalm 68, another one. May God arise, may his enemies be scattered. From book two. And this one I love. I love this one. Again from Psalm 68. A father to a fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. Oh man, there's so much beauty. There's so much beauty in book two of the Psalms. Now, most of the Psalms in book two are prefaced with a superscription or an instruction at the beginning. Most of them are. And almost all of them in book two have this phrase, for the director of music. Um, sometimes it may be translated for the choir master or the choir director. And, and this inscription insists or, or implies at least that these psalms were supposed to have been sung. Several of them actually mention the tune that you're supposed to use for these psalms. For example, Psalm 69 is supposed to be to the tune of lilies. Psalm 56 is to the tune of a dove on distant oaks. And to the tune of do not destroy applies to Psalms 57, 58, and 59. Obviously, the readers knew these songs. They knew these tunes, and that's how they were supposed to sing them. Now, there are other, other instructions that we see in, in book two at the beginning of some of the psalms that call the psalm a masculine or a mictum. Now, sensibly, this is either a musical or a literary term. A handful give the further instruction with stringed instruments. That's easy enough, isn't it? And there are several in book two, and specifically in book two, that, that list a specific situation that the psalm was written for. For example, in Psalm 57, it says, when he had fled from Saul into the cave. It's talking about David, and that's when that psalm was written and what it pertained to. And then there are a couple very obscure, kind of unclear phrases. According to Alamoth, is what it says at the beginning of 46. And at the beginning of Psalm 53, it says, according to Mahalath. No idea. 
Nobody really knows what those terms mean. Again, they were probably a musical term, but, but the meaning has been long since lost through the centuries. Now, as far as authorship goes for book two, I know Pastor Mark talked about authorship last week for book one. The first few, Psalm 42 through 49, were written by the sons or the descendants of Korah. Psalm 50 was written by Asaph. Psalms 51 through 71 were written by David. And the last psalm in book two, Psalm 72, was written by David's son, Solomon. Okay. Bunch of interesting stuff about book two in Psalms, and I mean, I think it's interesting, but tonight what I want to do is, is go from the overall view of book two and, and talk about just one psalm, and the psalm that I've chosen tonight to dig into is Psalm 51. Let's read it. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifice of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. A little background. I mean, we saw by the inscription at the beginning of this psalm what incident this is pertaining to. And I'm sure many of us in this room know the story of David and Bathsheba. So I'm going to tell it as succinctly, actually, as the Bible tells it in 2 Samuel, the 11th chapter. Chapter 11, verses 2 through 5. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. 
The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Well, that's not the end of the story, is it? Those of you who know it. David knew he had sinned, and his sin was going to be revealed to all of Israel and Judah, and he tried to cover his sin. He tried to hide it by bringing her husband, who was away at war at the battle, back to Jerusalem, assuming that he would go to be with his wife, sleep with her, and then David could say that the child, or he would assume that the child was his own. The thing is, Uriah was too noble to do that. He came and he slept at the gates. And he says, I'm not going to go in with my wife when my fellow soldiers are at battle. I will not do dishonor to them. I will not do dishonor to the king. David even tried to bring him to a, a, a dinner and get him drunk and send him out. But maybe now he'll go home to his wife and he didn't. So plan B, right? David arranged to have the man killed. He didn't do it himself. He had others do his dirty work for him, put him in the heat of the battle and have all the troops withdraw so that he would die, and, and it worked, and it worked. And the idea was he would then quickly marry Bathsheba, which, which he did, and then everyone would assume that the child had been conceived after the marriage. So it seemed like he got away with it, right? And then God sent the prophet Nathan to go see David. What kind of job do you think that was? You're going to go to the king, and this is what you're going to tell him. So Nathan goes to David, and he tells this story. There were two men in a village. One was rich, one was poor. Rich man had many sheep and cattle. The poor man had one little ewe lamb. And they kept that little ewe lamb as if it were a pet. It slept in their bed. It drank out of his cup. In fact, the Bible says the man treated it as if that little ewe lamb was his daughter. So one day, the rich man has a traveler visit him. And instead of going to his, his vast flock of sheep, he took that little ewe lamb belonging to the poor man and slaughtered it and fed it to his guest. Now, when David heard the story, he was furious, and he declared, the man must die. And Nathan looked at him, and he said, you are the man. Wow. So Nathan goes on, and describes the judgment that God was going to mete out on David. David replied, I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan said something very shocking. I mean, just shocking statement. 2 Samuel 12, verses 13 through 14. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because of doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, and the son born to you will die. 
I'm sorry, but this is outrageous. Don't you think? Bathsheba was raped. Now, you can try to sugarcoat it if you will, but listen, this was not consensual. The king sent his men to bring her to him. He was the king. She was just a person. Today, we might call it power rape. That's a term. But you know it's horrible. It's horrible, and it's inexcusable. And then David added deceit to the mix to try to trick Uriah first into thinking it was his child. And finally, when that didn't work, he, he committed murder. He did. I mean, he didn't do it personally, but as Nathan said, you killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And because of all this, because of all this, a child died. The newborn child was going to die. And then Nathan says... The Lord has taken away your sin? Really? So, so tell me, how would you feel if you were Bathsheba's father? I've got three daughters. I know how I'd feel. Or her mother. How would you feel if you were one of Uriah's parents or, or, or a brother or a sister and your son or your sibling, your brother had been murdered? For all of us, there, there is some sin that we think is just so heinous that it's just beyond our comprehension that God would forgive, right? Child molestation, genocide, good night. You know, I look at scenes from Syria for the last several years, bombing people in Aleppo. You see people in Gouda, parents holding their dead children because of bombs and Millions of people displaced, just trying to scrape by in refugee camps. And you think, God, there are so sin, so, some sins, there are some sins that are just so bad. How can you forgive? Well, here's the thing. I don't think we can fully appreciate Psalm 51 until we start to get a grasp of the enormity of David's sin. And brothers and sisters, it was enormous. Yeah. And this is quite likely, you know, way beyond what any of us will ever do, right? I mean, it's so far beyond the pale, isn't it? And this is the backdrop. This is the backdrop against which we now read Psalm 51, a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. You know, I said psalms show us how to think, feel, and act and how to do so properly. Psalm 51 reveals to us a great deal about God's mercy and his justice, but it also shows us how to respond to guilt as a Christian. And by respond, I mean not only the proper way to act, right? That's just part of it. But how to think and how to feel. How to feel guilt. Crushing, crushing guilt. How to regret our actions in a proper godly way. So I'm going to look at what David did. Let's look at what David did and what he felt and how, how he thought. First of all, this is what we learn from him. 
Own your sin. Okay? Own your sin. Nowhere does David deny his sin in this story, does he? Think about how other people sometimes respond when confronted with their sins. You know, they, they, they maybe respond with denial. So I didn't do that. I didn't say that. When you know fully that they did, um, they give excuses. Or maybe they try to spin the story, right? How are we going to spin that? Let's figure out how we're going to spin that. I hate that word in that context because what it says to me is lie. How are we going to lie? We're going to spin it. Um, or, or they blame someone else. Well, it wasn't my fault. It was, you know, what's this woman doing and taking a bath out in the open on this roof? I mean, blame someone else, right? Or maybe what people do is they say and do, they say and do the right thing because maybe they've been coached or they just know what they're supposed to say, but their hearts are unrepentant. You know, they're sorry, right? Sorry they got caught. Now, David didn't do any of this. He didn't. His reply to Samuel, as we just read earlier, was, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, in the first four verses of Psalm 51, David uses several words to talk about his sin, to describe his actions. He says, transgressions, iniquity, sin, what is evil? He uses all those phrases to describe his actions. He doesn't mince words. He's not trying to sugarcoat it. He's not saying, I made a mistake. He's not saying, I had a lapse in judgment, right? He's not saying any of those things. Let's look at it. Psalm 51, 1 through 4. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. <laughs> For I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. So first thing we learn from David in Psalm 51 is own your sin. Okay? The next thing, don't blame God. Let's read that last verse again, that fourth verse. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. David committed these sins, and David alone is responsible. God is a just God. He is. God is blameless. And the judgment that God served on David, we didn't read all of that portion, but he said that the child would die. He said that the sword would never depart from David's house. And those of you who have read the story of David in 2 Samuel, you know how true that is. And that his wives would also be taken from him and someone close to him would sleep with them except they would do it publicly, not in private as he had done with Bathsheba. So there was judgment. He didn't die, but there was judgment. This was a just judgment by a just God. That's what David's saying. David was not going to complain that he was mistreated or unfairly punished. David knew how to properly think and how to properly feel concerning God's judgment. 
God is just in his verdict, and God is justified when he judges. The next response of David is something that we learn from him is to call out to God. Call out to God in these times of guilt. David appeals directly to God in these verses we just read, directly to him, calling on three things. Let's think back on these three things. First, God's mercy. Second, God's love. And third, God's compassion. Now, this is the essence of grace. Yeah, that's the essence of grace. At no time does David assume that he deserves to be forgiven and restored. At no time does he remind God of all the great things he has done. And, you know, by the way, I'm the guy you made king, right? At no time does he remind God that he incidentally is a man after God's own heart. He doesn't go there. He throws himself on God's mercy and his love and his compassion. This isn't justice. No, not by any stretch of the imagination is this justice. Justice would have been death. In fact, David, think back to the story we read. David actually proclaimed his own sentence. What did he say? The man must die. He didn't know he was talking about himself, but he gave himself the death sentence. Justice would have been David forfeiting the throne. That would have been justice. This isn't justice, no. This is grace. Wow, this is grace. The next thing we learn, pray for cleansing. In verse 2, David asked that God would wash his iniquity. We read that verse just a while ago and cleanse him from sin. Again, in verse 7, we see this in verse 7. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Now, there's a couple significant things about hyssop. The first, the first is, if we think back to the Passover, when God was sending the last plague on the Egyptians and he was going to take the life of the firstborn in every house unless they had taken a a branch of hyssop, dipped it in blood, and put it across the doorpost. But another aspect of hyssop that we see is in the law where Moses gives instructions that if there is a house that has had a disease in it and the disease is passed, that the priest would then go in, take hyssop, and sprinkle it in the house, declaring this house is now clean and habitable again. And the message is clear. Only God can cleanse us from this sin. Nothing against the priest. They can go sprinkle the blood in my house. But David's saying, God, I need you. I need you to cleanse me with hyssop. I need you to be my priest. The next thing we see. So you pray to God for the cleansing. Second thing is, or the next thing is, is be sorrowful. Be sorrowful for your sin. 2 Corinthians 7.10, this is what Paul says. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets. No regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See, this is, this type, this is the type of sorrow that David was feeling 
This is how he was properly feeling guilt and responding to guilt. If you want to feel guilt properly, you must feel godly sorrow. It's got to be part and parcel to guilt. And David knew, as we should too, that this feeling is more important than any action. Okay? It's more important than any action. Verses 16 and 17 say this. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise. You see, feeling rightly is more important than acting rightly. David could have offered sacrifices for his sins. He could have done that. He could have gone to the priest. And... But that's not enough. We know that God sees our inner man, right? And, and he wants our hearts to be pure. Pastor Mark touched on this um, briefly last Sunday when he was talking about feelings. And, and he referred to the, the six antitheses that Jesus mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, you have heard, blah, 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 but I say... And then Jesus says the antithesis. In every one of those, the antithesis has to deal with the inner man, not the outer action. And the proper feel from guilt due to sin is brokenness and contrition. That's what David talks about in this verse. Brokenness and contrition. And the word that David uses, the Hebrew word that it's translated to contrite, actually takes the word broken to a level of being crushed, not just broken, but utterly crushed. A broken and a crushed heart, God, you will not despise. See, David understood the magnitude of his sin. We talked about it earlier. It wasn't lost on him. David understood the magnitude of his sin and his spirit was crushed by the guilt of it. And I will point out, rightly so, rightly so, his spirit was crushed by it and God accepted his sacrifice of brokenness and contrition. And finally, almost finally, <laughs> thought I was wrapping up, didn't you? Let God restore your joy. Let God restore your joy. See, this is a type of sorrow. This, this godly sorrow, this brokenness, this contrition, this is a kind of sorrow that God can only heal, that only God can lift and replace with true joy. In the eighth verse, it says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. And in the twelfth verse, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Oh God, restore it to me. See, God's faithful. God's faithful. He will restore the joy of his salvation to those who are repentant and seek forgiveness. But brokenness and contrition, brokenness and contrition are in direct conflict with pride and pride is something that we all battle, don't we? To some extent, we all do. This is what James said about it. God opposes the proud 
and shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. <sighs> oh, this is getting old, isn't it? But, but what's the next verse say? And he will lift you up. It is worth getting through all that other stuff just to hear those words. Think about what those words mean. When God lifts you up, you know you've been lifted up. Yeah. Let him do that. When you come before him repentantly with a contrite heart, he will not only forgive you. I mean, that would be enough, right? That would be enough. But he not only will forgive you, but he will restore the joy of his salvation. And the joy that God gives us makes the joy of this world pale in comparison. Make sure you know where your joy comes from. Because, you know, we can search for a lot of substitutes. I'm telling you, a lot of problems that we find ourselves getting into addictions and just going in the wrong direction come from us trying to find joy on our own. But we let God restore the joy of our salvation. There's nothing like it. Nothing like it. Nothing like it at all. And the next thing we learn from David's response is seek renewal. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. See, at the end of it all, David just doesn't ask God for forgiveness. That wasn't the limit to what David was asking him for. He asked for renewal. He pleads with God to be changed and that, I believe, is a hallmark of a, of, of a Christian. A desire to be changed, not just to always be the same, but to be changed. And in our case, to be conformed into the likeness of Christ, right? To move on from this situation with a new, pure heart and a renewed, steadfast spirit. This is true repentance. This is the pit repentance we just read about in 2 Corinthians earlier, the kind that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Yeah, a Christian should feel this desire to be changed in the inner being, okay? Changed in our inner being, not just to have our behavior altered, to have our behavior managed, but to have our inner being changed. God created in me a pure heart, renew a right spirit within me. Vowing to never do it again, that's not good enough. How many times have we done that, right? You know those sins that sometimes beset us and we just can't seem to break them and God, I promise I won't do it again. Or you get yourself in trouble and Oh, God, you get me out of this. Uh, I promise I won't do it again. Let God give you a pure heart. Let God change your inner being. You know, if I can feel rightly, if from my spirit, from my inner being, I can feel rightly, the chances are I'm more likely to act rightly. Right? 
if I let God change my inner being? And finally, you know, we've been talking about guilt and brokenness and contriteness and all this stuff and judgment. Well, I want to remind you of something precious from the New Testament. First John, I've said it before, I love John's writings. Oh, man, I just love John's writings. But in his first epistle, first chapter, verse 9, this is what he says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yeah. Come on, that doesn't get you excited. That is awesome. That is awesome. And that's the promise I want to leave you with. But as a postscript, a postscript to this story, David went on to have other children with Bathsheba. In fact, the next child they had was Solomon, who, who later became king. But here's the amazing thing. Eventually, Jesus Christ was born from the lineage of David and Bathsheba, our Savior, our Redeemer, that which began in the darkness and the vileness and the shame of unspeakable sin led to the birth of the Son of God who would be the ultimate sacrifice and atonement for all sin. This is how Paul put it. This is in Romans chapter 3, verses 25 through 26. This is what Paul says. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received, how? By faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So, back to my earlier rant, okay? How could a God who is righteous justify a rapist and a murderer and a liar? How could he not exact the ultimate punishment on someone guilty of such crimes? He can do it because he didn't sweep David's sins under the rug. That's not what happened. Oh, no. He saw through the centuries that Jesus Christ would die in David's place so that David's faith would unite David with Christ's future sacrifice. And David's sins would be counted with Christ's sins and Christ's righteousness as David's righteousness as Jesus bore all of our sins on the cross. We weren't born yet. David had been dead for centuries. But Christ took on his sin, just like he took our sins. David's sin was outrageous. Yeah. More outrageous was the death of the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus. God is just, and God is the one who justifies. Amen. 
Father, we, we want to be people that know how to think properly and feel properly. And God, regarding guilt, help us not just to do the right things, but to feel the right way. Lord, let us understand contrition and sorrow when we do sin. And Lord, let us depend on you to restore your joy. We thank you. You're so faithful to do that, God. Lord, Lord, make us people who are easy to repent, Lord, who are easy to come to you and ask forgiveness, Lord. Make us people, Lord, who are not ashamed to admit our shortcomings, Lord, and let you cleanse us. And Lord, let our desire be that you would create in us a pure heart, that you would let us feel and think rightly so that then we could act properly, Lord. Lord, be glorified in everything we do. Thank you for these brothers and sisters here tonight, Lord. I just pray you to bless them as they go. Watch over them and give them your joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Good night, everybody.